Well, I love um, studying, reading the Christmas story. Um, I love preaching from the Christmas story, and it seems like every time you dig, you find something a little uh, different, a little new, a little more beautiful than before. And I want to share something with you that has really impacted me personally, and uh, I'm so grateful for God's Word. It was St. Francis of Assisi who created the very first Christmas nativity scene in the year A.D. 1223. He had recently returned from a trip to the Holy Land and the birthplace of Jesus, and he was so moved by that that he obtained permission from the Pope to set up a manger with hay and just a couple of live animals in a little cave in the Italian village of uh, Grecio. And he then invited all the villagers to come, and they gazed upon the scene while he preached to them about the babe of Bethlehem. And that began a new tradition that kind of took root in many Western countries. And so today, you'll see nativity scenes in front of churches and homes and in public buildings and in pageants every Christmas season. Some of them are live. Some of them are figurines. Uh, it's amazing. They're everywhere. A nativity scene, it represents the night of Jesus' birth as it was depicted in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke who tell us the Christmas story. And a nativity scene is normally set inside a stable. It usually contains the same elements. No matter what kind of nativity scene it is, you'll see the Christ child in the manger and his mother Mary, his earthly father Joseph. You'll see a star and an angel shepherds and animals, and three wise men bearing gifts. A nativity scene is a beautiful tradition, but it can also present a bit of a skewed view of the Christmas story, because while each of the characters depicted were in some way part of the Christmas story, they definitely were not all present in one place at one time on the night that Jesus was born. Certainly Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were there, but the Bible says nothing about a stable or animals. And though the shepherds showed up after being told of Jesus' birth by angels, as far as we know, no angels accompanied them to the manger. Certainly not an angel on a little hook at the peak of the stable. Nor did anybody who was in Bethlehem that night mention seeing a star or any wise men, for that matter. Few Bible characters are as well known, yet so clouded by myth and tradition as the magi, the wise men mentioned by Matthew. Here's what Matthew says. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now the only legitimate facts we know about the wise men are the few facts given in Matthew's account in the first 12 verses of chapter 2. We're not told their number. We're not told their names. We're not told their means of transportation to Israel. And we're not told the specific country from which they came. We only know that they came, quote, from the east to Jerusalem, and that indicates the Parthian Empire and its territory. It had once been the kingdom of Babylon. 
In New Testament times, the Parthian Empire rivaled the Roman Empire for strength, and Israel was just kind of this little tiny buffer country in between these two great world powers. Now, the word our Bible translates as wise men is magi, which means magian. It's a, a priesthood of sorts, a priesthood of magicians is what they would have been called in those days. And it dated all the way back to the Babylonian and Medo-Persian empires that existed centuries earlier. So if you're a Bible reader, you've already encountered, you already know something about the predecessors, the ancestors of those wise men because you've read these words, the words of Nebuchadnezzar. The king answered unto Daniel and said, of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and he's a revealer of secrets. Daniel, because you could reveal this secret, you could tell me my dream and the meaning of it. And the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors, watch this, over all the wise men of Babylon. And that's where it started, this brotherhood of wise men, of magi. It started actually with Daniel in the Babylonian empire. Later, Babylon went the way of all empires and Medo-Persia came to power and, and the ruler Darius, the same thing happened with him and he said this to Daniel, calling him by his uh, Medo-Persian name, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee and no secret troubleth thee, Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen in the interpretation thereof. So Daniel actually was one of the founders of this movement, this brotherhood, priesthood, if you will, of wise men that had their roots in Babylon, in Medo-Persia, then in Greece, and then in the Parthian Empire, and it just kind of came down through history. The Hebrew prophet Daniel became a very influential government official, first in Babylon, then in Medo-Persia, he prophesied, Daniel prophesied of the coming of Israel's Messiah. And I wouldn't have time in this service tonight to unpack his prophecy fully because Daniel gave a very precise timeline of when the Messiah would come right down to the year. It's absolutely breathtaking and amazing. So due to Daniel's influence, the Magi, the wise men, they definitely would have had access to the Hebrew scriptures. And no doubt they knew many other prophecies that pointed to the Messiah as they studied the Hebrew scriptures first introduced to them by, by Daniel. They would have known prophecies like this one in Numbers 24. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And that knowledge... No doubt, they're wise men. They exist to accumulate knowledge. That knowledge would have been passed down through succeeding generations of magi. And then, of course, many thousands of Jews, after the captivity in Babylon, they remained in that territory. They, they grew up, they intermarried, they raised families, they built homes. And so the people of that region, what is the Parthian Empire in the New Testament, the people of that region, they definitely knew that a Jewish Messiah had been prophesied. 
And so that's why our Christmas wise men that we read about in Matthew 2, they fully expected when they came to Israel to find a child that had been born king of the Jews when they showed up in Jerusalem. The wise men came to worship the Messiah. They declared, we have seen his star in the east. Now there's a lot of speculation about the Christmas star. Some scholars have suggested that what they saw in the heavens was actually a supernova or a comet or even a special alignment of the planets. And those are all very interesting, but we can't prove any of those theories. But we do know that something in the heavens provided a very unusual sign for those wise men to look at. But I'd like you to consider this. This is, this is something I get into and I can't get away from it. That's not saying it's true. It could be too much bad food, too much good food, too much Christmas food. I'm not sure. But, but let me suggest this to you. The star of Bethlehem, according to Matthew's account, seems to have appeared only to the Magi, only to them. So that's not a typical normal star. Celestial bodies normally in the sky, they appear to move from east to west due to the earth's rotation. But we know that this star, the Bible tells us it led the Magi south from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Not a long distance, but still moving south. Stars don't do that. And then thirdly, this star of Bethlehem, it led them to a specific spot, the Bible says, and then it stood directly over the place where Jesus was. Now, if you go out tonight and you look up at the sky, you can't tell what those stars are over. They're too far away. So it certainly seems to me, reading the Bible account, that this was something far more significant than just a star in the sky that somebody happened to notice was a little brighter than normal. There is no natural stellar phenomenon that can do all that, appear only to certain people, uh, move south. Uh, there's no natural star that can actually stand over a specific spot or building or even town and let you know where that is. Could it be, maybe a Christmas thought for you to ponder this year, could it be that that star wasn't a star at all? but rather it was the Shekinah glory of God that had once stood over the tabernacle as a pillar of cloud and fire. And in the Old Testament, a pillar of cloud and fire led the children of Israel through the wilderness. After all, I'd suggest to you that that Shekinah glory followed Jesus all through his life. It appeared at his baptism. It appeared at his transfiguration. It appeared as at his ascension. And it had already appeared to shepherds in Bethlehem on the night of his birth. The glory of the Lord shone round about them. So it shouldn't be strange, especially for those of us that believe in the manifestation of the Spirit and we love the Scripture. It shouldn't be strange to think 
that the same Shekinah glory could manifest itself as a star in the sky on the very night that God came into this world as a baby. In fact, I would suggest to you that the Shekinah glory of God manifesting itself as what looked like a star, that's a tiny miracle compared to this miracle that the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth robed himself in flesh and came in a manger as a baby. I'm not trying to make a doctrine out of that. I just think there's more to this than just a star randomly up in the sky. On this first Christmas night, just as the Shekinah had stood over the tabernacle in the wilderness centuries before, it now, it now stood over God tabernacled in the flesh in the little town of Bethlehem. And just as the pillar of cloud and fire, you remember this, it gave light to Israel, but darkness to Egypt. The Bible says that, that Israel could see the light of the pillar, but Egypt could not. And in the very same way, only the eyes of the Magi were open to see God's great light over Bethlehem. Maybe that's what Isaiah was talking about when he wrote these words. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. I'm still thinking, when I saw the light, I rejoiced with great joy. When the light came into the darkness of my life, I was happy about it. We have beautiful Christmas carols we sing. One of them says, Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. I'd like to suggest to you it was a star brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That's what we feel at Christmas time. The world kind of slows down just a bit because they have to acknowledge the accumulation of centuries. I know a lot of it is just tradition, but can I tell you, there's a lot of accumulation of centuries of observation by faith-filled people slowing down long enough to thank God. I don't care if it's December 25th or October 13th or March the 28th. It doesn't matter the date, but once in a year, we slow down a little bit and say, thank you, God, for splitting time in half for coming into human history and intervening in this story called humanity. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. So fall on your knees, world, because we can hear angel voices. It is a night divine. It is a night when Christ was born. I love it. I love Christmas. The Bible says when Herod the king had heard these things, he didn't react like we do. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Herod is not a good guy in this story. Herod the great was a puppet king of Israel installed by the Roman Senate. And he was not at all happy to discover that he now had some competition. Although he had undertaken several colossal building projects like uh, restoring and rebuilding and enlarging the temple, he tried to curry favor with the Jews. His reign revealed him to be a paranoid tyrant 
He welcomed pagan religion and pagan entertainment into Jerusalem and he taxed the citizens heavily and he spent extravagantly. And Herod, he had several members of his own family put to death. The Roman emperor Augustus said about Herod the king, he said it'd be better to be Herod's pig than his son because he puts his family members to death. Josephus records Herod the king was so concerned no one would mourn his passing that just before he died, in those weeks leading up, he was getting weaker, he arrested and placed all the prominent Jewish leaders in custody and left an order for every one of them to be killed when he died so he could be sure there would be an outpouring of grief in the streets of the city. He was a paranoid tyrant. Little wonder that he sprang into action immediately when the wise men showed up with the news of another king of the Jews. Now I know we've got tradition at work here. Tradition portrays three wise men traveling on camels. And tradition even gives them names, by the way, Gaspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. And if you thought Gaspar and Balthazar and Melchior were in the Bible, they're not. They're not even in the concordance at the back. Scripture doesn't name them, and it doesn't indicate that there were only three of them. That idea only comes from the fact that they presented three kinds of gifts to Jesus. And then, since Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, it seems more likely that it's not three men on camels. It's probably a large contingent of imposing men riding into Jerusalem, probably on horseback. The city's residents were concerned. They were buzzing about it and talking about it. But paranoid King Herod, he felt threatened. He immediately gathered all the Jewish chief priests and all the scribes and he demanded of them, I want you to tell me exactly where the prophecies stated that the Messiah, the Christ, was to be born. Now the construction of the Greek language, you don't need to know this, it's stuff that preachers geek out over. The construction of the Greek language in the first four verses of Matthew 2 indicates that the wise men, however many there were, they didn't just ask once, where is he that is born king of the Jews? The construction of the language suggests that they went around the city of Jerusalem, probably knocking on doors, asking everybody, where is he that is born the king of the Jews? That's why the city was troubled. That's why Herod caught wind of it. They were going everywhere just saying, we're trying to find the king of the Jews. Your king, the king of Israel. Because the way the wise men had it figured, if they as foreigners knew about this monumental birth, then surely everybody in the capital city of Israel must be celebrating the Messiah. How shocked they must have been to discover that no one really seemed to know what they were talking about. And that's no doubt what led to them actually having a meeting with King Herod because he's the king, he's the current king, he's the existing king. Surely he will know about another king that is prophesied. But Herod didn't know. And the wise men were trying to figure it out. It was the scholars of the scripture who had the answer all the time. They said unto him, here's their answer to Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, 
in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Sure enough, those scholars, they remembered the writings of the prophet Micah who pinpointed the tiny insignificant village of Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah. And Micah said that he would be a governor who would rule the people of Israel. And that set Herod's teeth on edge because a prophesied governor was political competition. But if they had researched just a little further, they would have realized there was much more to this Messiah than a governor, than a political figure, than a ruler, or even a birthplace. If they'd have just read a little further, they might have come across this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now everything up to that comma, you can say everything up to that colon, you can say that's a human ruler, that's a governor, that's a king. But after the colon, you can't say that anymore. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. That doesn't belong to any human ruler. That belongs only to the Lord God Almighty. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. If they'd have just read a little further, if they'd have just searched a little longer, if they'd have just rolled that scroll a little more, they might have come across this. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now you know what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. There's nobody in human history that met that criteria or fulfilled that prophecy except for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He's with you right now. I don't care what you've been walking through this week. I don't care what bad news you got this week. I don't care how dark it seems this week. I know Christmas is a wonderful time, but Christmas is a kind of a time of year that it accentuates everything. If it's good, it's really good. If it's happy, it's extremely happy. But if it's difficult, it's tragically difficult. And if it's sort of dark, it becomes really dark because it accentuates our emotions. And we need to remember that as we're ministering to people and trying to be a light for Jesus in our community at this time of the year because Christmas may be wonderful for you and it may be horrible for somebody else because it accentuates emotion at this time of year. But let me tell you, no matter what you're walking through, if you've got Jesus in your life, you have Emmanuel in your life. God with us. God manifests in flesh for us. And King Herod, he's not really interested in any of these prophecies. He's only interested in preserving his power. So when they give him the news that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, on the spot he hatches this little plot to secure his crown and eliminate his competition. He dismisses the chief priests and scribes because they would know he's just a Jew in name only. And then he meets privately with the wise men. 
And he professes his desire to go and worship the new king along with the Magi. And he sends them to Bethlehem to discover the location where the Messiah is and report back. His real motive isn't worship. His real motive is murder. The Bible says, Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, he inquired of them diligently, watch this, what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. And again, tradition kind of gets in the way and blurs our vision a little bit because tradition says that the wise men followed the star throughout their journey. But scripture doesn't indicate that. The Bible only says in verse 2 of this chapter that they had seen his star in the east. There, there's no evidence that it continued to shine during their entire journey or that it led them to Jerusalem. They just showed up in Jerusalem because they're looking for the king of the Jews and that's the capital city of Israel, so that's the obvious place to go. If you read the Bible carefully, it was only after they met with Herod, only after the Jewish scholars revealed the place of the Messiah's birth, only then did the star reappear and it guided them not only to Bethlehem, but it guided them to the exact place where the young child was. Now, a normal natural star cannot do that. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they seen in the east, it went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And now, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, we come to this majestic moment when the wise men come from the east, first meet the source of all wisdom, come down from heaven. They meet Jesus, this is so important, they meet Jesus not when he's a baby, but when he's a young child. They meet him not when he's lying in a manger, but when he is living in a house somewhere in Bethlehem. Now, a literal star so far away in the sky couldn't have possibly went before them or stood over where Jesus was. But again, the Shekinah glory of God could do that. As the Apostle Paul would later write so profoundly in 2 Corinthians, what they encountered that night in that house, wherever they found Jesus, was what Paul described as the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what Matthew wrote. And when they were come into the house, not to a manger, into a house, they saw the young child, not a baby, a young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They fell down and they worshiped him. This is what they had been longing to do ever since their journey began. And whether they realized it or not, they presented treasures to the holy child Jesus that were of great prophetic significance. Gold is symbolic of Jesus' deity as a king. Frankincense is symbolic of his purity as a priest. And myrrh is symbolic of his anointing as a prophet. Those costly gifts 
perfectly foreshadowed the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. On earth, he was our prophet who came to minister to us. Today, he is our high priest who ever liveth to make intercession for us and very soon he will be declared king of kings and lord of lords. They didn't know it probably, but those gifts foreshadowed his ministry. Now we don't know precisely how many wise men there were or literally how they traveled or specifically where they came from. We don't even know exactly how long their journey took. But we do know one thing. They had the right motive. They came to worship Jesus. Somebody wrote a song years ago. Somebody put it on all kinds of Christmas cards and fridge magnets. Wise men still seek him. I hope there's enough wisdom in our generation of Pentecostal people that when we get together in a church service, we're still wise enough to seek after him, not just to go through our routine and hope he blesses it, not just to go through our songs and sermons and protocol and preliminaries and just hope he shows up to bless what we're doing. I hope there's still something in our generation, in our spirit that wants to seek after him to find out what he's doing and then jump full tilt in the middle of all of that. We know they had the right motive. They came to worship Jesus. And we also know they must have been very spiritually perceptive men because God warned them in a dream. Don't you go back to that evil King Herod and that thwarted Herod's plot to kill the young Messiah. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Their obedience to God may very well have helped to protect the young Messiah, but their defiance of King Herod began a tragic chain reaction. When they didn't return to Jerusalem, he determined to act unilaterally to eliminate any possible threat to his power. You see, he had inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared back in their home country before they ever began their journey. So he had a good idea. He was wily and crafty and subtle. He had a good idea when the Messiah had been born because he inquired of them diligently what time the star had appeared. And it must have been close to two years earlier because immediately after the wise men didn't show up, Herod issued an order to kill every male child in Bethlehem two years old and under. Matthew records it in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, they didn't return, he was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and he slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, watch, from two years old and under, and the reason he picked two years old and under was according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So this fulfilled a tragic prophecy by Jeremiah that there would be lamentation and weeping and great mourning over the massacred children of this region. But thankfully, 
immediately after the departure of the wise men and just in time to escape this genocide unleashed by Herod, God sent a dream to Joseph and told him, you take Jesus and Mary to Egypt and they lived there until after wicked King Herod had died. And all of that, brothers and sisters, is not just a Christmas history lesson. It all leads us back around to a verse we skipped and something that's actually quite easy to overlook. King Herod obviously suspected that the Messiah sought by the Magi, he obviously suspected he was approaching two years of age. So not only did the Magi, the wise men, not show up on the night of Jesus' birth, But this journey of the wise men from the east to come and worship him took nearly two years. They had seen his star in the east. They made preparations for their long and arduous journey. Maybe they had to sell businesses or buy supplies. And then they set out to find him. And according to scripture, it took two years. If you read the account carefully, the star that inspired them, it seems to have disappeared for much of that time. They just went in the direction that they had seen at the beginning because that star did not lead them directly to Bethlehem. They just picked Jerusalem and from there they tried to figure it out. But although they didn't have a complete picture or complete directions, they kept on traveling anyway because they wanted to worship the Messiah and they traveled for two years. Who could ever know? Scripture doesn't tell us just how difficult their road was or just how much their journey actually cost them or how many enemies or obstacles they encountered along the way, how many perils and dangers they endured. Scripture doesn't tell us just how much they must have sacrificed to purchase those precious gifts, costly gifts they laid at Jesus' feet. But those wise men, the reason I love them is because they never gave up and they just kept on going for two whole years. And that's why I think this verse leaps out at me from the Christmas story. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. (laughs) That star led them to the star. Jesus who made the stars, according to Genesis 1.16. Jesus who was the star out of Jacob, according to Numbers 24. Jesus who commands the stars. Jesus who ordains the stars. Jesus who numbers and names the stars, according to Psalm 47. Jesus who is worshipped by the stars, according to Psalm 148. Jesus who is the day star, according to the apostle Peter. Jesus, the one who holds the seven stars in Revelation 1 and Jesus at the end of the scripture in the very last chapter of the very last book of your Bible Jesus who is the bright and the morning star that star whatever it was it led them to the star of the entire Bible And so my point for your consideration, I'm not trying to make a Christmas doctrine out of it. I'm not trying to offend your tradition. You go home and you set up your manger scene just exactly like you want it. I did reference this. I was meeting with a bunch of ministers at a Christmas banquet in Ohio a couple years back, I think it was. 
And I talked about how it took the wise men two years to get there. And so one of the pastors from Ohio sent me a little video clip of his foyer. He said, here's my politically correct manger scene. He said, here it is. It was sitting on a beautiful table in the middle of the foyer. He said, here's Mary and Joseph, and there's the shepherds. He said, I took all the animals out, because the Bible doesn't say animals. And then he panned way down to the far end of the foyer. And he said, way over there, and he started zooming in. Way over there are the wise men, because it's going to take them two years to get here. I was glad he was trying to be biblically accurate. Here's the point. They followed that star, which very well may have been the Shekinah glory of God. They followed it for two long years. They rejoiced when they saw it at the beginning of their journey. But they also rejoiced on the days that they couldn't see it clearly. They rejoiced on the days that it seemed to disappear from view and they sure rejoiced when it eventually reappeared. They rejoiced on the days they encountered enemies and they rejoiced when it led them through rough roads and tough times. They rejoiced through tears and fears. They rejoiced every mile of the journey. They rejoiced every day for two long years and oh how they rejoiced when they finally got to see the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and they fell down and worshiped Jesus. But that shouldn't be strange to you folks because I'm talking to people who have followed his glory for a lot longer than two years in many cases. I'm talking to people you rejoiced when you first saw him at the very beginning of your journey. And you rejoiced all those days when you were trying to walk with God and you couldn't quite see him clearly. You rejoiced on the days when your eyes were full of tears and your heart was aching and the night was long and dark and it seemed like Jesus had disappeared but you kept right on traveling you kept right on walking you kept right on worshiping you kept right on rejoicing I'm talking to people who really rejoice on those days that you came to church you ever had a service like that when you've been, gone through this kind of a long, dry spell spiritually and you go into that service and it's not even specifically talking about what you've been going through. It's not even specifically directed at you, but there's just a moment in the presence of God when his spirit rushes over you and you think, oh my, there he is. I've been waiting to feel that for a few weeks now. I've been waiting to feel that for three or four months now. I've been serving. I've been praying. I've I've been reading, I've been faithful, but I just needed to feel that. Those moments make us rejoice with exceeding great joy. That's why the rest of us, can I tell you something? Can I give you a big hint here? That's why the rest of us on the Sundays you're on, on the Sundays you do feel it, on the Sundays you've got sunshine and rainbows and flowers popping up everywhere, you need to be on it. You need to be worshiping God and reaching out to God because seated beside you might be somebody that's walking through the trial of their life, the, the valley of the century, and they they need something. They need that moment. And if the rest of us reach out for it, they can easily reach out for it. 
I wish you'd do it right now. I wish you'd lift up your hands and whatever you got in your spirit, whatever you got in your heart, whatever you've got in your vocabulary to lift him up. There's something about worship and praise. It's one of the reasons we do church so we can get together and the oil of his spirit can flow from vessel to vessel to vessel. If you're walking through a dark night, keep walking. If you're walking through the trial of your life, keep walking. If you're walking through all kinds of chaos and hell itself, keep walking. I know you don't feel like it, but lift up your face. Put some kind of smile on your lips and say, Jesus, I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. Oh my, you feel that? That connected right there. See, that's what Jesus is doing. Somebody that's been walking through it, somebody that's been under that burden, God's just reaching down and saying, I'm still here. You can't see me right now, but my glory is traveling with you every day of your journey. Oh, 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 oh. I'm sorry, we just need to push pause right there. Could you lift up your hands and once again just saturate this sanctuary with your worship? It's just worship to you. You're having a good week. But somebody else, it's like rain to a dry, dusty desert. It's like rain to a withered plant. It's just something they need in this moment. Let the oil of your spirit flow from vessel to vessel to vessel to vessel, Jesus. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yes, 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 yes. La torre I know it gets hard sometimes. I know the road feels long sometimes. I know it feels like a huge effort just to lift a foot and take another step. But let me tell you, just keep on walking. Just keep on rejoicing. His glory is traveling with you. You can rejoice when there's enemies all around. You can rejoice when it's rough roads and tough times. You can rejoice when you got fears and tears everywhere. You can rejoice every mile of the journey. Because let me tell you, just like the wise men 2,000 years ago, when you get to the end of that journey, you're going to be able to fall down and worship Jesus. And it's going to be worth every mile of the trip. Woo. Oh my, I wish somebody lift up your voice loud and strong. Oh, rebate la basho sabaha. 
Habakkuk said it. I can't quote it. It was in my notes and I threw it out. Had too many scriptures. But he said, though there's not this in the barn and there's not that in the field and the crops fail, he said, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I got one better than him. Though there's enemies all around, though there's spiritual opposition, I am not going to let an Old Testament prophet put me to shame no matter what I'm going through. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. When we found the star, we rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And guess what? We're still rejoicing, devil. The devil thinks he can hit you and shut down your praise. You need to pull one over on him. And just every time he tries that, you just worship God all the more. You say, but I don't feel it. See, that's where you're wrong. Joy is deeper than happiness. Happiness is based on your circumstances, but joy is based on your Savior. Happiness is temporal, but joy is eternal. You've got joy in the Lord in the darkest night, in the worst day, in the most terrible situation. I will rejoice with exceeding great joy. Give me a keyboard player. It'll give them hope. Here's what Paul wrote to the Romans. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing instant in prayer. Oh, Paul, come on. With all you've been through, beatings and whippings and left for dead and had to escape over the wall of a city and thrown in jail. How in the world can you do that, Paul? Here's how I can do that. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. You know why I'm hanging on down here? Because I've got a date with destiny over there. And when I get there, it's going to be worth every long, hard road, every long, dark mile. When I get there, the glory that I'm going to receive there, it's not worthy to be compared to the trials of this present time. Here's what James wrote. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. James, are you kidding me? You want me to get joyful? to rejoice when I'm being tempted on every side, when there's all kinds of pressure to give up and give in and throw in the towel. James, how in the world can you do that? He said, I can do it because of this. Blessed is the man that endures temptation for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. I got, a, I got an answer for you. I can get through anything because Jesus promised me a robe and a crown in the new Jerusalem. So getting through a little bit of junk it's going to be okay. Here's what Paul wrote to the Philippians from a prison cell, by the way. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
And again I say rejoice. Paul and James and Peter and Jude and all you guys, I don't understand you. I know the Bible says some of you were stoned and I'm wondering. It doesn't make sense that you sit in a jail cell and you would write from a prison cell buried a story and a half under the street level of Rome. In the Mamertine prison, you'd write, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul, I got a question for you. Because I got grief, and I got troubles, and I got pain, and I got situations. How in the world can you do that and maintain that attitude in a prison? He would answer this from the same epistle. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God didn't bring me this far to leave me. He didn't lift me up to let me down. He didn't do that to me. He's with me every mile of the trip. His glory overshadows my life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear him. He that started this good work, he's going to finish this good work. Not I, but Christ that liveth within me. Paul, I still think you're crazy. Because you wrote to the Thessalonians, rejoice evermore. Don't stop. Don't quit. Don't slack off. Don't give up. Don't quiet down. Rejoice evermore. Paul, come on. Buddy. You've been through all kinds of issues and problems and trials. You've been through false enemies and false brethren both. How can you say, rejoice evermore? Here's what I would say to you. I got my eyes on the end goal. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and we'll all meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Eternity is a lot longer than my trial. Eternity is a lot better than my difficulty. Eternity is worth going through whatever I've got to go through. And I can do what Paul did and what James did and what Peter did and what Jude did. And I can rejoice in the God of my salvation. I can rejoice evermore. Joy is deeper than just mere happiness. Last scripture. Stand with me. I want you to be ready to praise God. Here's what Peter said. Peter faced all kinds of junk, all kinds of enemies. Peter was crucified head downward because he didn't feel worthy to die in the manner that his Lord had died. And here's what Peter wrote. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, Hear me, people of God, precious brothers and sisters. Though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Don't raise your hand. But am I preaching to somebody tonight 
that that would describe your life in this season? Heaviness. 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 Soul crushing. Mind numbing. Heaviness. What's the purpose of that, Peter? That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, that your faith might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And here's his punchline. Whom having not seen, you still love. Peter would tell you, I got to see him. John got to see him. You never got to see him but you still love him in whom though now you see him not you still believe in him and here's the third so you love him that's good you believe in him but here's the third one and the third one is what puts the icing on the cake to sustain you every day you love him you believe in him and you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory I came at Christmas time just two weeks out from Christmas to talk to somebody whose life feels so heavy. God would like to give you a gift at Christmas. It's his birthday, but he'd like to give you a gift. He'd like to give you your joy back. He'd like to give you your peace back. He'd like to give you that victory back so you can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So you can rejoice with exceeding a great joy I know the journey's not always easy but we're still rejoicing and the Bible talks about the body and the body of Christ is here tonight in this local church and where the body is there's healing virtue that flows I want you to lift up your hands right now the sermon is finished the Lord is not the message is over. The service isn't over. Would you lift up your hands and now lift up the center of spiritual warfare in your life? Your voice, a mighty voice, a loud voice, a strong voice, a high praise to the Lord. Yes, 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 yes. Somebody who's heavy, God wants to step beside you and put that burden on his shoulders instead of your shoulders. Somebody, you're so sad, you can't even define why. He wants to give you joy instead of mourning. He wants to give you peace instead of anxiety. Pray, church. You don't understand how important your prayer is right now. You don't know how important your prayer is to somebody else right now. Sotona <laughs> 
I wish somebody joined my friend Brother Larry at the altar. This church knows and loves him and Greta. We've watched him walk through days and nights and weeks and months of pain. I don't know anybody that loves the altar any more than that man. I'd like somebody to come to this altar and just lift up your hands and let God touch you tonight. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Oh, God wants to give somebody joy. You say, but I got difficulty. You can still have joy in the middle of the trial. Joy in the middle of the darkness. Joy in the middle of the night. Joy in the middle of the opposition. Joy in the middle of the enemy's attacks. All right, church, you ready? Lift up your hands and lift up your voice and begin to pray in the Spirit right now. Pray in the Spirit right now. There's going to be a ministry that flows from one to another, from one member of the body to another, from one vessel to the next vessel. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. So terebashe sababakasa. So rebale de la boshe de rebabato kosaba. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, Jesus. Now here's the part that will help the most. Here at this altar, down these aisles, in the seats, would you just reach over to somebody, anybody, and begin to pray with them right now. All the way back in the back, side to side, all down the aisles, up at the front, would you begin to pray with somebody? You say, I don't need this, good. That means that you can give it to somebody else. I don't need joy, Pastor Raymond. Good. You can be used by God to pray for somebody else. I don't feel like I need strength. Wonderful. You can be used by God to pray for somebody else. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, God. <laughs> 